So at 7.32, Seoul and Washington have kicked off their third round of negotiations to decide how much South Korea should shoulder for the stationing of U.S. troops here. The two-day talks in Seoul are being led by South Korea's chief negotiator, Chong Un-bo, and his U.S. counterpart, James DeHart. But as they met yesterday, protesters even demanded the two sides scrap their cost-sharing deal altogether. Remember, when we say third round of negotiations, we're talking about this time around. The current uh, state of affairs means we have to go through this every year. Let's discuss further with Bruce Bennett, researcher from the International Security and Defence Policy Centre at the RAND Corporation. Thank you for taking the time. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. What do you expect to play out over the few days that uh, are ahead of us? We have this deadline, uh, as I suggested, I guess November 22nd will be the very last day to try to repair things with Japan on the Gisomia front. At the same time, um, we've got just till the end of the year for military cost sharing to be sorted out. And these two issues seem to be tied together with the U.S. alliance interests. Well, they're certainly tied together. The cost sharing issue is a an interesting one. I have yet to see the U.S. administration say exactly what it wants from Korea and give a justification for that. Um, It's talked about in the South Korean media, but not on the U.S. side that I've seen, which is strange. The the figure seems pretty high that's been reported here, a five-fold increase for South Korea to pay five billion U.S. dollars a year for U.S. troops. That that figure, like you say, I mean, it may not have been confirmed by the U.S. side, but do you uh, have any reason to doubt it? No, it's probably within the range the U.S. would seek, at least as a going-in position. Whether this is then uh, something that they anticipate falling back from in order to get more, but not quite that much, is hard to tell. Uh, the problem with $5 billion, though, is... Um, the Korean National Assembly is not going to say, oh, sure, please take this money out of the Korean Treasury. They're going to say, well, if you're going to get paid that, it's going to have to come out of the national defense budget. Um, So the U.S. is asking South Korea to reduce its national defense budget, to reduce its defensive actions against North Korea. And that doesn't make a great deal of sense at the current time facing the nuclear threat that we do. And even a billion dollars was quite a a, a significant milestone and and quite difficult for a lot of local people here to get their heads around. So this same story probably would have caused as much controversy if we'd been talking about doubling that, let alone uh, going for a fivefold increase. Uh, what, What would be a realistic number, do you think? Well, I I think we have to step back and say, number one, we don't want to hurt defensive capabilities. And number two, historically, the defense ministry, when they've had to reduce their budget to pay this kind of thing, have largely cut procurement of new weapons. That's the primary place where you've got some flexibility. So to say that suddenly South Korea is going to pay an extra billion or four billion or whatever um, means it's going to have to cut acquisitions by that much. And much of that will likely mean reduction in U.S. uh, provided equipment, which means U.S. jobs will be cut. Um, So 
you know, do we really want, does the U.S. really want to see 5,000 or so American good-paying jobs cut to provide this money? And I think the answer is likely no when it gets discussed politically in the U.S. That drives you to a much more realistic figure of, you know, maybe 8 or 10% again increasing the cost-sharing, but certainly not as big as what's currently being discussed. Yeah, I mean the thing is, even eight or ten percent. What is the the justification for that percentage? When, for example, we are seeing extremely sluggish inflation in pretty much every other area of life. Well, that's right. In a GDP increase uh, in Korea, which is a few percent for this year, so you're you exactly know, barely two percent. Right. Yeah. We need a justification, and uh, thus far I have not seen the American government provide one. Um, The only statement I've seen is the comment that Korea is a rich country and ought to be paying more. Uh, That's not a justification. Uh, A justification would say, look, here are the costs. Uh, This is what we need to be able to afford something critical, and uh, the historical justification has been that the equipment and personnel costs of the U.S. forces in Korea are going to be borne whether those forces are in Korea or in the United States, and therefore the relevant cost is operations and maintenance. Um, And therefore, since some of them would also be borne if the troops were in the U.S., an even sharing, roughly 50-50, uh, would be the justification for what Korea ought to pay, half of those operations and maintenance costs. And those would probably go up, you know, even maybe 3 or 4 or 5%, but not even the 8 or 9% that was asked for, that was achieved last year. Right. Let's talk a little bit further, though, about the Trump administration. It uh, may have months rather than many years left to go who knows uh, where it's heading does the domestic situation affect the u.s negotiation position well certainly the the domestic situation affects it but there's not a direct effect in this case you know the uh, the u.s got the u.s situation that president trump faces is associated with not not with korea and so if President Trump suddenly be, obtained some great victory. Um, it would have a little bit of effect, but not much in domestic politics at this stage. And certainly getting Korea to pay a lot larger amount of money for U.S. force presence without any justification that says what that money would be going for, at the same time it's reducing our defensive capabilities in Korea, isn't going to sound like a victory. What happens if they just cannot agree? If Trump refuses to back down or if his representatives refuse to back down and South Korea refuses to budge also, would would we have a situation where there might be a pullout or is there a contingency that uh, allows the status quo for a certain period of time? Well, we really don't know what would happen. I mean, in large part, that's up to President Trump. As the president, he's going to make much of those decisions Of course, Congress would have some input. Congress has limited President Trump to a reduction of the current troop levels by about 6,000 personnel that he could reduce. 
without giving thorough justification to Congress. Um, and he could do that thorough justification. He could try in any case, but he would receive a whole lot of political pushback in Congress. So there are some constraints on what he can do. We really don't know what would happen if there's no agreement. Some of our listeners might be thinking of the recent pullout from Syria border areas and the effect it had on Kurdish populations and the feeling like American allies had been betrayed. Is there any similarity or comparison to be made here? Well, I've I've heard some of my Korean colleagues draw an analogy to that. Yes, um, I think it would not be a good idea for U.S. troops to be pulled out of Korea. Um, certainly not in a period of time where North Korea has a significant number of nuclear weapons, maybe 30 to 60 nuclear weapons, uh, for the U.S. to leave and leave Korea no defense against those weapons would be the height of irresponsibility and probably cause a disaster for other U.S. alliances worldwide. So hopefully that's not something that the U.S. government would consider doing. Could um, South Korea potentially pacify the United States by uh, performing a U-turn in the next four days or so and and extend the GSOMI military intelligence sharing agreement with Japan, which was an agreement brokered initially by the U.S. in which the U.S. is very keen for Seoul to renew? Well, uh, the U.S. is very keen for Seoul to renew. I'm you said the U.S. initially broke. I'm not familiar with the A U.S. Bro- break. Brokered, brokered, I, oh, as brokered. in supported yeah, it. Please. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. The U.S. brokered it. Look, this, this agreement is critical, and part of the problem here is from the U.S. side. The U.S. never really explains to the Korean population or government the degree to which the United States' support of Korea in a wartime situation is dependent upon good support from Japan. South Korea does not have a well-developed airfield uh, infrastructure for us to fly both combat aircraft in to operate and also to fly huge numbers of passenger aircraft in to bring personnel to Korea that are needed for a war fight. And this is critical at the same time when the South Korean military is going to lose 100,000 men in roughly the next three years or so. So um, you can't afford to lose a whole lot from the South Korean military and slow down the U.S. deployment of forces in a conflict. That might undermine deterrence of North Korea. So we have to have close support with Japan and the overall strategic attitude of alienation between South Korea and Japan that would be simply illustrated by a cancellation of the Jusomia Agreement, that's not a good thing that we would want to take a chance on. There is a feeling here, though, that the U.S. is is very aware of that, but is not demonstrating sufficient sensitivity to the reasons for South Korea, um, potentially withdrawing from this agreement, which is currently the course we're on, um, or, or allowing it to lapse to be more accurate. The, the, the point being, for example, that Japan imposed trade curbs on the basis that it couldn't effectively trust South Korea. And South Korea is saying, well, if you can't trust us, there's no point us having this military intelligence sharing agreement. I mean, is that a, a flawed argument? 
Well, the whole issue of trust, as I understand it, the Japanese point was that there was some evidence that materials were going from South Korea to North Korea that were not allowed, that were sanctioned by the UN sanctions. Um, but then, on the other hand, uh, uh, there is some evidence that things from Japan are reaching uh, North Korea. So, yes, the U.S. needs to be sensitive to the, the South Korean concerns, but South Korea also has to realize that it would be very difficult to defend South Korea for the U.S. to support South Korea in its defense without Japanese support. And in a conflict situation, North Korea will undoubtedly go to Japan and say, look, Japan, if you support the U.S. going to South Korea, we're going to hit you with nuclear weapons. If Japan and South Korea are alienated in that kind of a situation, is Japan really going to agree to allow U.S. support? Um, it's a real concern. Before we start feeling, though, like we're being targeted by the U.S., it's probably fair to say that Trump is not all that discriminating. For example, the reports that he is pushing for Japan to increase its spending by a figure that would even dwarf the $5 billion that South Korea is being allegedly demanded to pay. Yes, well, he, he is being a, an equal opportunity uh, uh, in asking uh, for more money from uh, other countries. Um, I think it's a pattern. He's made it a point politically within the U.S. that he did not think that U.S. allies were providing uh, an appropriate share of uh, the defense costs that were shared. Um, there is congressional action that says what the appropriate basis should be, uh, and there has been no justification, as I have mentioned, to a larger share being provided. So, uh, you know, he certainly has made a decision, though, that that's something he wants to do, uh, and not quite clear where he's driving with that. Bruce Bennett from the Rand Corporation, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, happy to be with you. Thank you.